Hi, my name is Juliette Selgren, and this is my podcast, The Great Antidote. This podcast has been brought to you by the Center for Growth and Opportunity at Utah State University. To learn more, visit www.thecgo.org. It is my great pleasure to welcome Tevi Troy. He is a best-selling presidential historian. He has written many books on the presidency, including his 2013 book called What Jefferson Read, Ike Watched, and Obama Tweeted, 200 Years of Popular Culture in the White House. But today we're here to talk about his latest book, Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So before we start, I want to ask you something that I ask all my guests, which is what is the most important thing that people my age or in my generation should know that we don't? So far be it for me to speak for your entire generation, and I hate to classify an entire group just based on the years in which they were born. But for what I am seeing, I think there is a lack of an appreciation of the idea that you can disagree without being disagreeable. There seems to be a sense that if someone has different political perspectives, they can't be friends with someone of a who doesn't share their political perspectives. You see this in dating apps when people say Republicans only or Democrats only. And I think we are all healthier and better off if we can have conversations with people who disagree with us. We might even learn something. I have plenty of friends who are on the other side of the political aisle than I am. And I think I've learned a great deal from them, and they've been helpful to me throughout my life and throughout my career. So that would be my number one piece of advice to people of your generation. Just because someone doesn't agree with you politically doesn't mean you can't be friends with them and you can't learn from them. That's such a good answer. I've seen that a lot, and it honestly kind of scares me. And I'm not sure. I mean, I've only been alive for 17 years. So I've only, I only know what I've seen, really, and what I've read. But it's not something that I see people talking about all the time, like, oh, now it's changed from this to that. And now people don't like aren't friends because of this. I don't know if it's a new thing, but it's kind of scary because for me, I I understand that that shouldn't be like super important in terms of if you can be friends with someone or not. But some people that I know are just so aggressive on that front and I just don't understand. And I hope for them that it changes, that they realize that that's not how they should be assessing their friendship. Yeah. Amen to that. Let's, uh, let's hope that your uh, blessing there or your call there uh, becomes the, the way of the whole generation. Cause I think, I think something is lost when you just can't talk to people who don't agree with you. So let's dive into the book. Um, the, something I really loved about this book was that what, from what I've seen and from what people seem to talk about a lot is that there was lots of dysfunction in the White House and there were lots of fights under President Trump. But in your book, you point out that it's not new. There have been rivalries and fights since like the beginning. I mean, especially you mentioned Hamilton in your introduction and then you start with Truman and you talk about all the different rivalries and the different forms they take. So 
my first question to you is why did you decide to write this book? Well, you got at it in the setup to your question. At the beginning of the Trump years, there was all kinds of hand-wringing and screaming about, oh my gosh, there's fighting in the White House. This is unprecedented. We've never seen such a thing. Well, I'm a historian. When I hear the word unprecedented, I go to look for precedents. And so I specifically went to see if the assertion was true, that we've never seen fighting like this. And I found, even though I'm a presidential historian and I trained in presidential history and I've worked in the White House and I've thought about the presidency my whole life, I found that there's so much more infighting once you start to dig than I had ever imagined. And I found unbelievably great stories that I myself, who again, I'm a presidential historian that I'd never heard before. And I said, I got to share these stories. They're too good not to share. And that's why I wrote the book. And I'm glad you shared because I myself probably never would have found that information and I wouldn't have even thought to look for it really. But now that you wrote this book, I read it. I loved it. I thought it was so interesting. Well, I appreciate that. Um, You know, I got to say the people who've read this book really seem to like it. I've I've gotten very good feedback on it. And I think I have a, a method as an author, which is I try to write stuff that would never bore me. I don't want to be bored. And if I'm writing something that I find boring, then I'm just going to tear it up and start from scratch or or do something else. So I really was thinking, how do I keep the pace going in this book? How do I keep the rhythm going so that you have these fun, interesting stories, but also that I make a larger point, which I am really trying to make about how a president can set up an administration so they actually get stuff done. So based on that, um, what do you think? I mean, you talk about how some people think that fights and rivalries within the staff is beneficial and how some people completely disagree with that and think that if there's disagreement, that's just going to like be chaotic. Which side do you identify with more? What do you think? Look, I I don't think people have thought about this sufficiently. I think for the most part, people say, oh, fighting, that's bad. We don't like fighting. But they also don't like the groupthink that we were subjected to in the Vietnam War when Lyndon Johnson suppressed internal debate on the very important question of how to prosecute the Vietnam War. And so we kind of ended up with worse policy as a result. In fact, I say in the group, in the book, that there was a group of State Department aides who were skeptical, but they were so afraid of Johnson that they wouldn't even form a group. They called themselves the non-group and they met at secret times so that Johnson wouldn't find out about it. That's not a way to have a full, robust debate inside administration of very important geopolitical and world historical choices. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense because I feel like you shouldn't have like outright, like kind of, I don't even know how I would explain that. You can't have like everyone fighting all the time. It should be some sort of like you are free to disagree, but it's more of a constructive conversation instead of either secrets or the opposite, where it's just like arguing 100%. What I try and lay out in the book is that there is a continuum. On one side of the continuum is where you have nothing but fighting and you have dysfunction and people backstabbing and leaking. And it's so problematic that people are afraid to say what they think for fear that someone will undercut them or leak on them or do something damaging to them. That is an impossible way to move forward in a White House. However, at the other end of the continuum is where you everyone agrees so much that you don't hear outside voices, that you're not allowed to have internal dissent, 
And it's an, an it's another form of dis- dysfunction. So what you need to find is some kind of happy medium, a place where you can have robust internal debate, but at the same time know that everyone, once their voices are heard and the president makes a decision, then they move on, lock arms, like Karl Rove said, and I quote in the book, they lock arms and say, okay, the president has decided, we all had our say, and now we're all behind the policy. And that is the appropriate way to do things. I think that's a good way to think about it and to explain it. I mean, that makes it make a lot of sense for me thinking, well, both sides of the spectrum are dysfunctional, just different types of the same thing, which is kind of interesting. And I think more people need to understand stuff like that. But kind of, you mentioned how um, in Lyndon Johnson's White House, how there were lots of problems where people couldn't speak their minds. And that obviously wasn't how it was at the beginning. I mean, people talked within the cabinet, within the White House, all of that. Um, So can you give us a short history of how the office of the president has evolved from the time Washington was president to when Truman was president? Yeah. So in the days before and the years before Truman was president, and starting from Washington on really through FDR, through Franklin Delano Roosevelt, you had a president, and when the president wanted aides, the, the aides for the president were basically the cabinet, the cabinet secretaries. Maybe there was an undersecretary in, in some departments. But for the most part, you did not have a White House staff like we see it today. In the Roosevelt administration, as government started to grow, there was a sense that there was too much going on for the president to have a handle on just with the help of his cabinet secretaries. And so this commission called the Brownlow Commission issued a report that famously said, the president needs help. And the help should come, it said, via a series of aides with a, quote, passion for anonymity. And that is really the origin of the White House staff. The White House staff, as we know it today, basically comes out of that report and that idea. And so it begins under Roosevelt. Truman, with whom I start the book, is the first president to enter the presidency with a White House staff. And so the whole question of infighting, I just argue, has a different dynamic post-Truman than it did in the days when the cabinet secretaries were, were the chief aides to the president. The other thing is that once you had White House staffers who might be in charge of foreign policy or economic policy, they are almost by definition going to run at odds or run afoul of the cabinet secretaries or let's say the cabinet the Treasury Secretary, the State Department head, the Secretary of State, who believe that they should be the lead person on those issues. And and indeed, they are legislatively. But in fact, the National Security Advisor sits next to the president. The National Economic Advisor sits next to the president and in that way can have more influence over decisions, which is often a frustration by these cabinet secretaries. And that's why the most frequent fight that I talk about in Fight House is between the national security advisor, whoever he or she might be, and the secretary of state, whoever he or she might be. It's not necessarily personality driven. It's positionally driven. It's based on the fact that the secretary of state thinks they should run foreign policy. And they often, as a result, run into contact with, again, I'm sorry, into conflict with the national security advisor who is next to the president and advising him on foreign policy. And what does the White House look like today? How is that different from, well, I don't know, let's say Washington and then Truman and now? Well, you didn't really have a 
White House with staff quarters back in the in the Washington days. In fact, uh, Washington didn't even work in the White House. Uh, that, that doesn't come until the Capitol moves to um, uh, to DC around eighteen hundred, and then uh, you you do have a White House, but it does burn down. And so then you have a White House for the first century that is a residence for the president, but it doesn't really have room for staff. Teddy Roosevelt realized that it's not big enough, and he built what's now known as the West Wing. Before that, all staff was in the East, uh, the the Eisenhower Executive Building or the East Executive Building, and uh, that at one point held the departments of uh, of Defense, or what was called Department of War, and the Def- Department of Navy. I mean, it was a, it's a huge, huge uh, building, and you know, right now the Pentagon uh, has uh, th- those offices. So um, this one building on Seventeenth Street uh, really had to have all the staff. For running the entire military now that obviously is an impossible standard so under teddy roosevelt you get the west wing and then you start to have this idea of white house aides that becomes formalized under franklin roosevelt and so truman does have some aides but he also doesn't have the kind of instantaneous communication we have so uh there are times i talk about in the book where national security advisors use the fact that they controlled the paper and the paper was in front of the president or in the White House and the Secretary of State didn't have time to run over to the White House to double check the memos and make sure that he was on board with them. Now with email and secure communications, it's a lot easier to do. So I think uh, you just uh, have kind of a, a shrinking of distances as a result of communication, even as the president influence expands as a result of the growth of both government and the size of the staff that he has before him. Your book starts with a chapter on both, well, after the introduction, with a chapter on both Presidents Truman and Eisenhower. Why did you put them together in a chapter? That's a really good question. And I got to say, I've done a bunch of interviews on the book. You're the first person to ask it. I, I argue that Truman and Eisenhower were very similar in their approach. They had a kind of button down approach. They didn't really want a lot of infighting. It was before White House aides became famous, and that the, so the real shift happens in Kennedy once you start to have famous White House aides. And I just thought the similarities were so great that that I wanted to combine them. The White House, in some ways, the White House staff was created by the Brownlow Commission, as I said earlier. But in other ways, the White House staff, as we know it today, of these kind of glamorous people who go on to famous jobs afterwards, uh, really started with the Kennedy administration. So I, I just thought everything before Kennedy was just a little different, and that's why I thought it was appropriate to combine them. That makes sense. It's kind of like a middle period. And yeah. Kind of, yeah, I like that. Um, so what are the key factors that led to the change in the institution that is the White House? Well, first, first of all, was the advent of television and uh, kind of glamour. I mean, you started to have uh, a White House aide could be recognizable because he appeared on television and suddenly people know who he is. Uh, second of all, John F. Kennedy brought in relatively famous people to serve as his White House advisors, most famously Arthur Schlesinger, who was a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian before he ever joined the administration, probably the best-known historian in America at the time. And then he also had Ted Sorensen, who was really famous as a result of his work with Kennedy, but still was relatively well-known. He ghost-wrote Kennedy's uh, famous book uh, that that also won the Pulitzer Prize, in the, in the 1950s, and his uh, and there was so much glamour around Kennedy that the people around Kennedy were just just sort of became known. So the fame that came with the initial wave of Kennedy aides, I think, was part of 
the shift in the White House to, to make people realize that suddenly this job is not only a job where you get to serve the country, but it's also a potential springboard to success and to great fame after an administration. And obviously, we've had many, many White House aides who went on and became a much more famous after, like George Stephanopoulos, for example, who became a, an ABC News uh, commentator after serving the Clinton administration, or Peggy Noonan, who was a White House speechwriter under Reagan and is now a Wall Street Journal columnist. So you have the sense that if I blow this, it could really have a negative impact on my career. But if I thrive in my time in the White House, it really is a springboard to great fame and potentially great fortune. Some interesting factors. Um, in your book, you talk about some of the conflicts being the product of how cabinet heads butt, head, butt heads with each other and with White House staffers. You talk in particular about the huge conflicts during the Kennedy presidency between LBJ, who was the vice president, and Robert Bobby Kennedy, who was Kennedy's brother. And these two guys, they really disliked each other. Yeah. <laughs> can you tell us why? And can you tell us what happened between the two of them? Well, these two guys disliked each other for the moment they met. I talk in the, I tell the story in the book of when Kennedy, Robert F., not John, was a Senate aide in the 1950s. Lyndon Johnson, who was the Senate Majority Leader, encounters him and wants to shake his hand. And Kennedy doesn't think much of Johnson, doesn't stand up and won't shake his hand. Johnson goes, looms over Kennedy for the longest and most uncomfortable time until Kennedy finally realizes that he has no choice and he gets up and shakes Johnson's hand. They hated them each other from that minute. And as Kennedy's father once said, Bobby's my boy. When he hates you, you stay hated. And Johnson sure stayed hated and it was, and it was mutual. But there's an interesting dynamic at play in that Johnson enters the White House as vice president, but not someone who really has a lot of power as vice president because the, the Kennedy team didn't think much of him. Robert F. Kennedy is the attorney general to his brother, the only time you've ever had an, an arrangement like that. And Robert F. Kennedy is incredibly powerful in the White House, far more than an attorney general would typically be. But then in 1963, John F. Kennedy is tragically assassinated in Dallas. And as a result, suddenly Lyndon Johnson is catapulted to power and he becomes a very, not only president, but a very powerful president. And Robert F. Kennedy suddenly becomes a very non-powerful or impotent attorney general. And the two men just don't get along. Uh, Robert F. Kennedy uh, eventually leaves the administration and then he runs for Senate in New York in 1964, becomes a senator from where he torments Johnson. And the, so the two men have this hatred that continues through the different levels of status that they have throughout the career and actually tracks them until the end of Robert F. Kennedy's life uh, when he's uh, running to replace Johnson as president and he dies in the California after the California primary in 1968, murdered by Sirhan Sirhan. I can't imagine what would have happened if the Kennedy president presidency had lasted eight years because i mean it seemed like a super explosive like dynamic and i don't know i can't help but wonder how long he stood waiting for the handshake i can just imagine it being like five to ten minutes and it probably wasn't that long it probably but wasn't but it seemed that long right <laughs> i don't know i just 
kept laughing because that's just what I was thinking about. And I was like, oh my gosh, that if that happened to me today, I would just feel so uncomfortable. I also don't think that it would take me that long to shake someone's hand, but I don't know. It's just kind of silly to think about and just to imagine because we don't have like a picture of them, of one looming over the other, but it's just an interesting thing to think about. Um, so, okay. Can you give us examples of a few of the other fights that have led full grown adults to fight and not talk with each other anymore? Yeah, I kind of love that, not not talking. So I tell a story in the Truman administration of the fight over the, uh, the, the, the state of Israel and whether the United States should recognize it. Obviously, today, Israel is a very close ally of the United States, and it just seems odd that we would have even wondered whether to recognize Israel. But it, it, was a, it was a debate then. And Secretary of State George Marshall, whom Truman actually revered, uh, was against recognizing Israel. But Truman wanted to hear the other side, so he tasked Clark Clifford, who at the time was a junior White House aide, later became Secretary of Defense under Johnson, but he was was a relative unknown at the time. And Truman tasks Clifford to make the case for recognizing Israel in front of Marshall and in front of Truman. Not only does Clifford do this, but he does it quite successfully, and Truman sides with the junior aide Clifford over the Secretary of State Marshall. Marshall is so mad that he loses this encounter, that he never again speaks to Clifford, or, and this is crazy, utters his name for the rest of his life. Talk about carrying a grudge. So, yeah, I mean, sometimes people take these fights very seriously, and they they linger long after the people leave the White House. And there are a lot of examples in the book also of where even when you don't see the fight, like, flat out, you kind of can pick up on clues, like someone just refusing to mention someone else's name for the rest of their lives in their memoirs, in books, in articles, in quotes. It's just so, I don't even know. It's, I would say part of me really wants to laugh, but part of me is also like, that's kind of sad because that's the White House. So I'm conflicted as to how I should react. Yeah, it might go contrary to the advice I, I gave about uh, your generation. It seems like there have been other people throughout history who have taken this problematic approach where they can't get past their political differences and they bring it into the realm of the personal. Uh, but uh, but I would argue that people like uh, Clifford and Marshall were anomalous, and I would say that most of these fights don't end in this kind of uh, systemic long-term hatred. And I, I point out in the book there was a uh, frequent disagreements between Ed Meese and Jim Baker. Ed Meese was the person who thought he'd be chief of staff under Ronald Reagan. Jim Baker got the job, and they did clash while the two of them were both working in the White House. But they, uh, but but they had correct relations with each other face to face, even though Baker did leak negative things about Meese to the press and had a, a, a dismissive nickname for Meese, who was a little overweight, and he called him Poppin' Fresh the Doughboy. Uh, but, uh, but, but even though they, they had these disagreements in the white house, uh, I, I would say they did not end up as enemies. And in fact, later on, when, when Baker is the head of what's known as the Iraq study group, which when the Iraq war is not going well, he heads this bipartisan group to try and figure out a way to improve uh, the policies and the, and the approach. And there's a, a whole 
on the committee because Rudy Giuliani, who is now uh, also back in the news these days, um, is appointed to the committee, but he doesn't show up for the meetings. So they need to get another Republican in there. And Baker, again, who was an enemy of Meese in the White House, or at least a rival of Meese in the White House, picks Meese to join this Iraq study group and Meese, patriot till the end, he agrees to join. He doesn't say, oh, well, Baker's doing it. I'm not going to do it. And Baker doesn't say, oh, I'm not going to get that guy Meese. So uh, Baker saw the right person for the job and he picked him and they worked together again then. So uh, again, I think that's a better approach to get past these disagreements while you're in there and recognize that they were uh, they, they were based on what was going on at the time and are not necessarily things that should really uh, follow you for the rest of your life. And um, along that same kind of wavelength, that idea, your book shows that different presidents have different styles of management. What do you think are the ones that are most conducive to conflicts and why? Well, I think, you know, you know I, I lay out the three levers that presidents have in their control if they want to limit infighting. Number one is ideological disagreement. If you have a team that is ideologically aligned, you're going to have less infighting. Number two is a process. And I mean, by that, I mean a decision-making process where everyone gets a chance to say their piece. And if they have their, um, you know, if, if it doesn't go their way, at least they felt like they had their say. And then number three is presidential tolerance. Uh, the current president has uh, shown tolerance for infighting, has even said, I like conflict. Uh, but other presidents, like Obama, said, I, I, I don't want to see this kind of stuff. And uh, he was famously known as No Drama Obama. So I think presidents can control it to some degree. I don't think they can completely eliminate it, but I think they can control it to some degree. And sometimes you have a president who can't control it uh for reasons that I think are um, a mark in their benefit. So uh, um, Jerry Ford, for example, everybody said what a nice guy he was. And, and apparently he was. But he was unable to control the constant infighting in the Ford White House. And in fact, the Ford White House was was the most, if not or, or one of the most contentious White Houses I look at in Fight House. And it was in part due to the fact that Ford was just too nice a guy to address the problem. So kind of being too like i don't even have a word for that well there is a word for that it just slipped my mind anyways <laughs> in the chapter about the truman white house you write that quote the truman staff was no freer than any other from ordinary tendencies toward turf battle personality conflicts and backbiting such episodes were minimal unquote you explain that it's because he loathed conflicts and Another president that also had this similar view towards conflict was Obama. Your chapter about Obama, about the Obama White House, is called Conflicts in the Era of No Obama, No Drama no Obama, drama. Yeah. which, I don't know, I just, for some reason, the way it rhymes just made me laugh. Um, yeah. You write, quote, there was no Baker versus Mies, no Kissinger versus Rogers, no Brzezinski versus Vance, let alone anything even close to LBJ versus RFK, end quote. Hmm. Yet there were some great tensions. And to my surprise, many of the dramas kind of centered around gender and about female senior officials feeling diced by male counterparts. Can you talk to us about that a little bit? Sure. The, 
you know, I, I thought the gender tension was very interesting in the Obama White House and something that I don't think I picked up on during the administration. It's only after the administration ended when you had access to more of the memoirs and the records that suddenly you see what was going on. And so there was a sense among the women in the Obama White House uh, that they needed to just stick together. And sometimes they stuck together at the expense of the men. And uh, there are certain men who didn't get jobs that they thought they were going to get because uh, the, the Obama White House was trying to fill certain jobs with women, not necessarily the best person for the job, but they said specifically a woman has to get this job. And sometimes people were put out by that. And then also I told the story of Alyssa Mastromonaco, who was relatively young looking, but she was a pretty senior person on the Obama transition. She sees Larry Summers, who's kind of a, a pretty legendary economic advisor in, in democratic circles. And she's all moon-eyed about seeing the famous Larry Summers until he turns around and asks her to get him a Diet Coke, after which she kind of shoots dagger eyes at him and resolves to uh, to roll her eyes at him anytime he speaks for the rest of the administration. So um, they, they, they eventually reconciled, which is interesting, and I laid that out in the book. But uh, she clearly uh, had a gender-based um, disagreement with him or a gender-based reason for disliking him. And, uh, and so I think that showed up. Do you think that the reason why it was more gender related was just because of the, um, just because the administration said we have to fill this position with a woman, this position, this blah, blah, blah. Um, I think that doesn't help. And the, the, the story I specifically talk about is uh, uh, Dan Pfeiffer, who thought he was going to be the communications director in the Obama White House. And that was the job he had in the campaign. And it ended up that a woman got the job who, uh, who had not even worked on the Obama campaign and had even backed Hillary Clinton. And so he was pretty mad about that. And he talks in his memoir about how Obama had all these great rules about not uh, facilitating conflict and trying to avoid conflict. And once he got passed over for his job, he kind of went uh, out of his way and uh, uh, tried to uh, uh, tried to undercut this woman who got the job over him. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that I think that feeling like you were aggrieved, like you didn't get something that you should have, does I think sometimes lead to um, yeah. to not only alienation but also to uh, misbehavior. So we have a new president elect, Biden. If you had any advice to him about how to organize his White House staff in order to minimize explosive conflict or fear of speaking out, what would you advise? Well, I think about the three levers. Number one, try and have an ideologically aligned staff to the extent you can. Make sure you have a fair process so people feel like they can say their piece, even if they don't always win. And number three, make it clear that you don't want to see this kind of stuff, that uh, you have little tolerance for this kind of behavior and that you, you guys need to put the country first and not your own uh, personal predilections above the, the country's interests. So I think it make those three things clear at the outset. And, and I think that, that you'll probably be in better shape than you would be if you don't make those things clear at the beginning. So um, kind of on the idea of chief of staff because this is something that I've been kind of interested in but have just gotten into really um so the first chief of staff is hired under Eisenhower can you tell us about the like give us a short history about chief, the chief of staff of the white house and i mean it wasn't obvious that the position would stick 
from the beginning. That's what the impression that I've gotten. So well, not only was it not obvious, but it didn't stick. Right, some administrations had it and some didn't. Uh, Eisenhower has the chief of staff Sherman Adams, who gets into some ethical trouble. Uh, chief of staff is a position that comes from the military, and Eisenhower was famously a general. Uh, when John F. Kennedy comes in, he doesn't have a chief of staff, and neither does Lyndon Johnson. But then when Richard Nixon brings the Republicans back, he does return with the chief of staff. But the chief of staff, he picks H.R. Haldeman, goes to jail as a result of the Watergate scandal and is seen as a little too imperious. So when Ford comes in, he has Donald Rumsfeld as the technically as the chief of staff, but he doesn't even call him chief of staff. He calls him staff coordinator. And then later when um, Jimmy Carter takes over, he also doesn't have a chief of staff initially until he realizes that the administration is insufficiently focused, I would say, and uh, has uh, too many um, too many moments of lack of clarity and um, problems problems as a result of not having a chief of staff. So he does uh, go with the chief of staff, and then Reagan follows up with the chief of staff. And then I think from Reagan on, you've had that position ever since. So uh, it was a close run thing. It went back and forth for a while, uh, but I think it was really when Carter realized that despite the fact that he just liked the Ford and Nixon administrations, he did need someone to be in charge of the staff. And then so Carter makes that decision. And I think the subsequent presidents followed. And then it also helps that Ronald Reagan had James Baker, who was probably the best chief of staff ever and the most successful chief of staff ever. And by most successful, I lay out the three criteria, which are number one, successfully serves an administration, gets it reelected. Number two, avoids scandal and uh, doesn't have any scandal himself. And number three, kind of leaves on his own terms as opposed to getting fired because he either angered the president or alienated the president or made a mistake. (laughs) You talk about how different chiefs of staff, chiefs of staffs, chief of staff, chief of staff. Yeah, yeah. Um, how their styles, their different styles, had influences on the way that the presidents governed and their style. Some presidents like to have their chief of staff act as gatekeepers and have a more centralized White House, but mo- but others would rather have a decentralized White House where the chief of staff assists mainly the president, but everyone in the White House has access to him. How did different styles of um, chiefs of staff impact the conflict in the White House? Yeah, look, the if you give the chief of staff authority over the staff, uh, for the most part, they should be able to manage things and control conflict. However, sometimes chiefs of staff uh, want to kind of get in the mix a little bit too, too much themselves. Here, I'm thinking of John Sununu in the George H. W. Bush administration, and he. And Dick Darman, who was the head of OMB, both very smart guys, but too smart, perhaps, because one bragged about his IQ scores, the other bragged about his SAT scores. And the two of them kind of suppressed any type of dissent in the Bush White House and even suppressed new and interesting ideas from coming up through the pipeline. And so Sununu himself got involved in the conflicts in a way that I I don't think a chief of staff should have. And um, he did not pass those three tests I laid out. He um, uh, he did get involved in a scandal about uh, misuse of government uh, travel resources. Uh, he his president did not get reelected, and um, he did not leave of his own volition. Although he had to be told multiple times that the president wanted him to go before he agreed to leave. Yeah, that doesn't sound great. Um, <laughs> so, but he was a smart guy, right? He was a clearly smart guy, and Bush also probably wouldn't have been president without him, given how much help. He provided in the New Hampshire primary. He was a former governor of New Hampshire. So, I mean, 
some some positives and some negatives. Yeah. <laughs> Finally, my final question to you is what is one thing that you believed at one time in your life that you later changed your position on and why? Yeah, I guess I would say I did not think I was going to get married. <laughs> I was not so into that and um, just didn't think that was going to be my pathway. And obviously I, I did do that. And my wife and I have been married for 20 years. I have four wonderful kids. And um, just, uh, you know, sometimes you think something at one thing, one stage in your life. And then uh, sometimes you uh, realize that you should better off going in a different direction. That is interesting. That's kind of cool. I mean, I I don't know. I everyone my age feels like they have a very definite idea of where they're going in the future and what their familial life is going to look like. Also, their professional lives. And I'm like, I have. Yeah, I think they're all wrong. Let me just say that. Anyone, anything you think at age? Are you 17? I believe. Yeah. So anything you think at 17 is just not gonna. It's just not gonna play out that way. Things. Uh, you know, I I was living in New York. And, uh, you know, and just uh, religiously, I was different. Politically, I was different. Uh, never occurred to me that I'd work in the White House or be a senior appointed official in, in the United States government or write books when I was 17. And uh, I've done all those things. So uh, you know, j- just don't make too many plans based on what you think when you're 17 is my advice. Yeah, I mean, I really don't. I mean, that's not I don't. I do and I don't. Like, I do, but I know fully well that it will not happen the way I think it will happen. But there are a lot of people, if this doesn't happen, I'm going to be crushed. I'm like, prepare to be crushed, man. Sorry. Yeah, look, I'll tell you, there there, there are disappointments in life. There are jobs I didn't get, and there are books I tried to write that uh, you know, that no publisher wanted, or there's um, articles that I tried to pitch that were not accepted. I mean, that, that happens. It's natural. Uh, but the, the key thing in life is not whether you ever suffer disappointment, but how you react to the disappointments. Uh, you know, I don't want to resort to the Rocky movies, but uh, what they, they say there is it's not life is not about uh, how hard you get punched, but whether you can get up again afterwards and whether you do. Which is generally, I don't know, that's, that's a good thing to hear. It's, a, it's good advice. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on my podcast and talking to me about this book. I have been recommending it to people left and right. I think it's so important for people to understand this sort of thing. And I knew I definitely didn't understand it. So I don't know. It's just, it's very interesting. So thank you so much again. And yeah. Sure. Well, your next recommendation should be to your mom that she should write a column on the book because we, she and I've been talking about it. So uh, (laughs) we'd love to see that. And uh, I think it's great that you're getting into podcasting and, uh, you know, there's um, there's all kinds of great possibilities in in this great country. I know that if you read the newspapers, you think everything's down and miserable, uh, but it's just not the case. And uh, I think there's a lot of potential. And look, the, just the way we're talking right now over my computer, and you're recording it and going to issue a podcast, it's just something I couldn't have imagined when I was 17 years old. The technology didn't exist, and I didn't even know that the technology would exist. So I, I think we've made uh, a lot of progress in not that many decades, and I think there's more progress to come. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely looking up to the future. I'm very excited. So thank you again.